The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. We're back on the road this week as we stop by the Italian city of Turin for this year's Utopian Hours Urbanism Festival. We hear how a disobedient picnic ignited change in Brussels, transforming one of its main boulevards into a pedestrian area. Why don't we picnic on the street every Sunday to reclaim space and to show that people want quality public spaces? Tour the Royal Green Walk in Turin, giving the public access to otherwise inaccessible parts of the city. They proposed to do this long walk all outside in the outdoor, through the Royal Gardens, also in spots of the garden that are not public and that you cannot cross. And talk about timber and how it can help build more sustainable cities. There's a whole suite of environmental issues where cities have been taking the lead, often out of frustration where, say, national governments aren't doing enough. And the city's flexibility and nimbleness have allowed them to take some bold leadership. All that and more coming up over the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist. And our guide today is Monocle's Carlotta Rebello. We're back in Turin for the Utopian Hours Urbanism Festival. Over three days, the event took over the Italian city, bringing an array of international speakers to the Centrale Lavazza to discuss the big ideas for building better cities. Under the theme Manifesto for New City Making, this year's edition covered everything from temporary urbanism to floating farms, mobility and social innovation. One of the people in attendance was Bram de Wolfs, who founded the placemaking collective Urban Foxes in Brussels. His organization has been a catalyst for change in the city, improving the quality of public spaces and reclaiming the streets back to pedestrians. I asked Bram how it all started. So in 2012, my life got turned upside down because I was a teacher minding my own business. Not really into city making, but I quickly felt that Brussels had something that wasn't too right. I felt something. And then coincidentally, I read an open letter from a philosopher reaching out to the younger, at the time, Facebook generation to take action because, according to him, things were not going fast enough. It was Philip Van Parez, who is uh, also teaching in Oxford, and he was one of the people that made the beautiful market square in Brussels, the Grand Place. He made it car-free by protesting. And he said, why don't we picnic on the street every Sunday to reclaim space and to show that people want quality public spaces? And I just made a small Facebook group for eight friends, and somehow it got published on social media, and 
it exploded in my face and there were 3,000 people wanting to join this group. I had to add them manually. That sounds like a lot of work and <laughs> clearly it paid off. But what I love about this is the wording of it, a disobedient picnic, clearly organized, clearly within some rules. But there was a bit of irreverence here to yeah. actually be the catalyst of change. Definitely. For us, it was really important that this you could call it protests, was on one hand very familiar, very accessible for people, inclusive, but at the same time it was very important for us that it was disobedient because we believe that taking your chair or taking your sandwiches to sit in public space, you don't need to have any authorization. So what happened next was that, well, the next day we were picked up by media in China, Colombia, and this is where really things changed for us. Now, of course, this is back in 2012 mm -hmm. and it's been over a decade since then and really this transformation of the public spaces in Brussels can be seen. You know, the city really has changed. One of its main boulevards is now pedestrianized thanks to your work and the work you've been doing. Tell us about that process and I guess how do you even tackle a big change like that? Because we know there's always resistance. Mm -hmm. So how did you go about making that a reality? Yeah, I think we were in a way very lucky that there was this common understanding that things need to change. It was also the time when people started questioning the presence of the car. So in the first level, our first step, we kind of just took the space. And then from there was three years of coming and going and try to kind of negotiate with the city and to get things done. And then all of a sudden there was a political decision going for, at that time, the biggest pedestrian zone in Europe. So it was a big success, and then we were also asked to do the similar disobedient intervention in, in different cities, and they also paid off. But at that time, it was also a matter of being at the verge of burnout, as I think a lot of activists and placemakers will know. And then we thought, you know, maybe it's also good to come with a more proactive story, and this is how Urban Foxes was founded. We didn't really know what we wanted to do. We thought it would make sense to create a kind of legal body a small non-profit to grow from there and beginning our actions were pretty fragmented we made a mobile petanque that we opened up for kids to play and then actually by coincidence in 2015 we started working on uh, European projects because with my background as a teacher it made sense to connect city making with education and then thanks to Erasmus and the European Union we were able to progress and now into kind of a more professional NGO you mentioned that one of the projects and, you know, there's a lot of tactile urbanism solutions that you deploy when beginning interventions in spaces. Tell me a bit more about your approach to when you are thinking about, OK, maybe let's go and give this a try, because you don't always come from a starting point where it's permanent. There's a lot of experimentation here. Yeah, definitely. And I also think in the beginning we were more into the building part, and I think this is also very useful and important. But I also think what we're trying to do now is really build the urban imagination of a lot of people and the tools that we're developing, the methods. They're not necessarily building something tactile, but it's really building on the understanding of people of what is climate change, what is sustainability, and also triggering their imagination. And at the same time, the results we get from these kind of more gamified methods, we can also deploy them and use them to inform the policymakers. So sometimes we, we're the intermediates between the people and the, and the government. And on the other hand, we really believe that non-formal education is the key to create systemic change in our cities, to kind of educate and, in a playful way, the new generation into becoming sustainable city makers. 
You mentioned their education and of course there's a, a huge pedagogic side mm-hmm. to Urban Foxes and the work you do, uh, not only working with youth but really a sense of educating about the involvement you as a citizen can have in a city from whatever age and from wherever you may live in the city as well. What are some of the initiatives and some of the methods that you deploy in order to do this pedagogic engagement with the local community? Yeah, so I, I think you summed it up very well. So we really try to educate in a non-formal way. But for us, it's really about opening the door to these young people and give them a voice in the city making. And a few of the examples that we use, there are more structural ones, like the Academy for Urban Action, which is kind of a do-tank of young people working on contemporary needs of the city. And these young people are not only informed, but they also take action and they also receive participatory budget for this. And apart from that, we also believe it's very important to collaborate on a more global level. So we both work locally with our youth, but we also think together with placemakers from all around the world to share these tools. So other tools that we are developing is for a European project. It's called Placemaking for Inclusion. And there we have developed a placemaking cookbook so that we can share all our tools and our knowledge in an open source way to the field of placemaking. I guess just one final question. It is, of course, we've been talking a lot today about, you know, the power of these temporary solutions to actually affect permanent change in the city. I guess I'm just curious to hear your perspective on how important you think disruption is to actually achieve that change. I think it's quite important, the disruption, not only on a, like I said, a technical level, but also on a mental level. I believe that a lot of people see the urban fabric as something static and they think that a road with cars will always be a road of cars. And I think what we really try to do is spark this imagination with very simple, fun activities. We have, for example, one tool is called Heaven and Hell. And we made it together with the young people because we saw that if we asked young people about how to improve, some of them were quite reluctant because they said, we're not experts. So what we did is, okay, well, you don't feel comfortable making this a better place. Why don't you make this space even worse? And this was really a fun exercise. And this allowed these young people to reconsider the space and think about the things they don't like and then we as professionals working together with architects we could deconstruct this information and really design for the youth using this kind of more disruptive ways of thinking. Next I had a chance to catch up with Scott Francisco an architect and co-founder of Cities for Forests a network helping connect cities with sustainable wood suppliers in order to deploy tactical urbanism solutions. He told me more about the initiative. Uh, we're actually up to over 100 cities now. Wow. It was founded in 2018 with a few organizations including my own pilot projects to harness the energy of cities that are making more and more actions and claims and activities in service of the environment. So, of course, this includes the climate action movement that C40 and other organizations like the Climate Neutral Cities Alliance and others have been promoting. So that's the leadership of cities on climate, but also the leadership of cities on biodiversity and health and well-being and water. And so there's a whole suite of environmental issues where cities have been taking the lead, often out of frustration where, say, national governments aren't doing enough. And the city's flexibility and nimbleness have allowed them to take some bold leadership. And so within that movement, we saw a real opportunity to 
look at the issue of forests, both inside of cities and far away from cities as well, as an opportunity to really run with that and see what more cities could do. So talk to us a bit more about how it plays out in practice. We just saw a film and heard earlier from you about, of course, the collaborations of getting sustainable timber Mm -hmm. to be deployed in cities where the source of that timber might be from far away. Mm -hmm. But what are other ways that the network works in practice? There's quite a wide suite of tools and resources for cities. And for example, within the urban uh, tree and urban forest aspect that we call the inner forest. We help cities do inventories of their trees, looking at management practices, and often that's just sharing best practices from one city to another because there's incredible knowledge and skill sets within cities already around the world on how to do that well, but not every city has access to it, so we wanted to just take those best practices and make them widely available. Helping cities integrate those kinds of plans with climate action strategies, so are there opportunities for either reducing their emissions or even sequestering some carbon with inner forests and landscapes. And the nearby forests, we sort of we say there's the inner, the nearby, and the far away. The nearby would be things like watersheds, where you know cities, of course, depend on reliable water, fresh water. In many, many cases, that water is coming from forested landscapes within a few hundred kilometers of the city. And so if the city has no agency in maintaining that landscape, their water is at risk. But then on the timber, you asked about that. So although we do have certain amounts of timber that can be generated inside of cities, and we work with urban, we call it urban wood, local and urban wood, it's fantastic. You know, cities often discard quite serious amounts of trees because of storms and age and disease that trees have to be managed and often cut down or they fall down. And we've promoted programs that use that wood and can build street furniture and so forth from that wood. However, if we zoom out, the building of cities, the rebuilding, new buildings, and the growth of cities worldwide will demand vast amounts of material. Now, most cities around the world today are built primarily with concrete and steel. Those are the two primary materials for the building of cities today. Whether you're in Africa or Canada or Europe, these are very high carbon intensity materials. And you know, somewhere between 10 and 20% of our global emissions is coming from simply the concrete and steel used to build just the structural frames of buildings. And that's going to increase dramatically with, say, the urbanization and population growth in Africa and Asia. So there's a big movement that's looking for low-carbon, bio-based solutions to building that infrastructure, and one of those materials is wood. And then there's the question of, well, where would that wood come from? And uh, how far away would you need to get the wood from? So I will say, on the question of distance, we take a position that distance is a factor, but not a primary factor in how you would source your wood. It's more important to think about the impact on the landscape, the forest. That has a vast carbon outcome, much greater than the transportation carbon cost, which is usually quite low when you talk about, say, shipping with a container, ocean-based shipping. So looking for cities to engage with the sourcing of timber by buying a certain type of timber, we would call it, say, conservation timber or sustainable timber. It's going to do more good than harm and have a net carbon storage benefit. If we can build our cities out of wood like that, we've made a huge benefit towards our our climate action. 
Now we're here in Turin for Utopian Hours Festival and also you have partnered with Stratosferica to work on a new temporary space that has been deployed in Corso Farini and where you know exactly conservation wood has been used and a lot of these things that we've been talking about has been put in practice. Can you tell us a bit more about that project and Cities for Forests involvement there? So that's called the Partner Forest Program. And part of the Cities for Forest suite of activities has this program where we pair cities with specific forest areas in the tropics with the intention of supporting local, community-oriented conservation work. And when we we were introduced to them, we said, well, how about conservation timber? This is a high-quality, long-lasting timber. It will last for many decades in public space use. So it's very well-suited on the technical side. But even more so, it will actually send this signal to this forest enterprise and community where they're feeling like they're actually connected to a vital urban culture. So we've found the supply chain, what we call the value chain, that connected from a European supplier through right back to that community sourcing. We use two types of timber. One is called Iroko and the other is called Tali. They both came from Gabon and a particular concession in Gabon. Now, Gabon has, as a country, has made a declaration to become what they call a green superpower. They're one of, if not the most forested country on the planet in terms of percentage of forest cover. And that's very valuable tropical forest in terms of biodiversity and carbon. They've told the world they're going to do a good job and that they're going to protect this forest on behalf of the planet. So let's do business with them. Let's find a way to work with them and bring their story into our story. And so that's what we have here. And we've actually made an effort to tell that story to the public. So if you visit the park, you can see some phrases that describe some of the climate and carbon benefits, some of the relationship to the local people, just different parts of that value chain message. And so it's just great to see it showing up here in Italy and to involve the community. And we hope that that's just a small example of what will become more and more common that cities will reach out to those faraway places and say, we believe in what you're doing. We believe in in the integrity of your landscapes and we want to be a positive source of support, economic support and otherwise. On the following day, we left the conference hall and ventured out into the city of Turin. Stratosferica, the creative urban lab behind the festival, is constantly trying to improve the city it calls home. One of their latest projects is the Royal Green Walk, a route they devised across the historic core, connecting spaces which would otherwise be closed off to the public. I joined Laura Martini, the general manager of Stratosferica, for a stroll. Royal Green Walk is a cultural uh, event that we did this year in summer in June for Open House Torino. We thought to make a project on a walk that was unusual for the common people in Turin and this comes from an idea of senior city officials that uh, worked for the administration of Turin and uh, when they retired wanted still to promote and contribute to the city cultural life. So we joined together and we did this kind of think tank of senior angels, we call them. They proposed to do this long walk all outside in the outdoor through the Royal Gardens, also in spots of the garden that are not public and that you cannot cross. 
The walk that is called Royal Green Walk is a, a walk that not only tells about the history of the town but also of the future of the town. It talks about the um, transformations that the town is uh, undergoing. You can so, really see as you walk through the route that you guys put on this beautiful map explaining all the spots we're stopping, just how the city has changed and is going to change. Yes, exactly. Because this is a way, I mean, walking is a way, you know, also of talking. It's a way to tell about the town in all its uh, transformation, all its characteristics and features. This is really important because Torino is an, a continuously changing town. It's not like, you know, the typical, you know, cultural heritage town of Italy, like Florence, Venice, Rome, Naples. It's a town that had his strong identity in, in the industrial history, but has also this beautiful cultural history and it doesn't merge so we wanted to make it merge and also to tell how the town is changing because the town in the last 20 30 years lost its peculiar and specific uh, industrial identity and now it's becoming something else and so since stratosferica uses to tell uh, you know it's uh, storytelling is one of our goals and we would like to accompany the transformation of the town during these years and to make people participate of these transformations i'm curious to hear the royal green walk was launched for open house torino yes and it was a success in the first few days are you having engagement from residents and tourists what's the split i'm assuming a lot of people are rediscovering their city through this as well yes absolutely i mean we had a massive massive participation uh, during open house actually open house is a huge event in turin but the royal green walk had a massive participation and uh, it was for tourists but for people from all over the region not just for Turin people they came from all over the region we felt there was a really great need to understand where the town was going so the two things to uh, walk through places that cannot be seen usually and also understand how the town is is changing was the main goal of the people that came to visit the Royal Green Walk so they asked strongly to make it a kind of event that is repeated in the town. In fact, we are studying a kind of program with the museum. We have to, you know, it's really hard because all the spots we are seeing today are managed from different kind of administrations. So we have to put them together and then try to find an agreement and then do what we have to do, that is the walk. So the role of Stratosferica is also to try to facilitate this process that's are really, really hard to start. But if you, you are like a trigger, we are like a trigger. We start and uh, we try to find a way to do things even if they seem impossible to do. So here it's really about helping make those connections, helping museums, institutions associate with each other, which might not have done otherwise and just so that our listeners understand as well it's not just about a route you've created this amazing sort of fan-like map that yes. tells you all the spots and gives you a bit of information it's a really great wayfinding tool for people to engage with the route in this we have eight sites do you have a particular favorite and may i ask you why actually i do really love the cavallerizza complex the stables 
because we worked a lot and the town, it's a place where the town invested a lot and for years it has been an abandoned place and then a squatted place for cultural reason. There was a much conflict on that building and at the end they found a kind of, you know, compromise and uh, as always, I mean, when you want to do something but it's a really nice project of uh, public and private uh, connection and partnership. So at the end, Fondazione Compagnia di San Paolo decided to make a huge investment on Valerizza. They did uh, an international competition that at the end was won by Cino Zucchi Associati. And we worked with Cino Zucchi on the communication part and participation part. So it's something that I feel that's much stratospheric in it. So when we will walk through Cavallerizza, you will see there's also an exhibition of the international competition. You know, it's something that we feel that is a little bit also our engagement has helped to renovate and to start this process of transformation. So I really love the Cavallerizza complex and you can see it here. Now, creating human-centric cities was at the heart of almost every single discussion that happened here at Utopian Hours. And one of the ways to do so is by reclaiming street space back from cars. This was the starting point for the podcast-turned-movement called War on Cars. Focused on mobility and car culture, particularly in the United States, it brings to life the livable streets movement, advocating for a better way to organize our roads and shared spaces. I caught up with one of its hosts and co-founder Doug Gordon to learn more. When we started, we kind of felt that we were like the weirdos, especially in the U.S., of like, who are you radicals and your idea, you urban elites who think everybody can get around on bicycles and the subway? What if I live in a place where there's none of those things, right? And now we don't feel quite as weird. We've grown an audience and the issues outside of the podcast have just become bigger now, whether it's climate change or covid or changing people's understanding of how streets could be used with outdoor dining, for example. We feel like the movement has just grown up around us as well. So it's been fun. And I collaborate with Aaron Napperstek, who is a founding editor of Streets Blog, and Sarah Goodyear, who also worked for Streets Blog, but she's written for City Lab and lots of great publications. And they both bring, I'm more of an activist, Aaron is too, but Sarah and Aaron both bring like a journalistic perspective to these issues as well. Do you find that the conversation about taking the space back from cars in cities is still a hard conversation to have in the US? I'm quite curious from your perspective, how do those take shape? I live in New York City and I live in the most walkable, transit-rich, bikeable neighborhood in New York City, which makes it probably the best neighborhood for those things in the United States. And even there, we have to fight over every single parking space. In a neighborhood where like 60% of people don't own cars, and of the people who own cars, they don't use them for daily transportation. But you try to put in a school street or bicycle parking, and it's a slog. It is a war. And it's hard. And it's a cultural battle which I think maybe makes our podcast unique because we're approaching cars as a cultural problem that needs to be solved as much as a policy-based one. 
to get people to change habits is difficult, but even more difficult when you have cities that are, do not have the infrastructure to provide the alternative. And that's where this balance really lies, is yeah. if you want to convince people to give up their automobile for daily commute, there needs to be a viable alternative. And that's not always the case. No, and you see how difficult it is in New York City, where there are viable alternatives to driving in most neighborhoods. There are transit deserts. There are communities that don't have as much access as like I do living in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. And then you throw that out to Detroit, Houston, Atlanta, even Los Angeles, which is doing some things to improve transit and improve their streets. And it's true. I think the hard thing is separating the good faith opposition from the bad. The person who really is car dependent because there is no other option versus the person who says, I'm not going to give up my car until you give me another option. Well, would you like a bus lane on your street? No. You know, and we deal with that a lot. That's why, like I said, it's a cultural problem that's harder to solve. A lot of this transformation can begin by citizens taking action. And you mentioned a take you did on the Department of Transportation and called it the Department of Transformation to exactly deploy some of these uh, almost activist solutions to change the way the road is used. Tell me a bit more about that project. Yeah, so I'm outing myself a little bit as I did at the audience here in Turin. But there was a bike lane on Christie Street, which if your listeners are familiar with Manhattan, was a, is a major entry and exit for cyclists coming off the Manhattan Bridge and for drivers as well. And there was a painted bike lane on both sides of the street and it was regularly parked up by cars and blocked. It was really dangerous. Many people were injured. Someone was killed there. And there was a plan to fix it. And it just languished in bureaucratic hell, as these things do. Fears of losing parking, just the nature of bureaucracy, whatever it was, it wasn't happening. But we knew the plan existed. And, you know, I think a lot of times you hear people say, you can't put a bike lane on that street because how will people with disabilities access the curb? How will businesses receive deliveries? How will people find a place to park? Whatever it is. And, and so much of our debate happens on like a PDF with a cross section of the street that people can't see. They can't imagine it. And so it becomes this void into which all fears, legitimate or not, get sucked. So we, I and some activists, created a group called the Department of Transformation. We literally just put a little tiny R next to the DOT logo. We went out and we were inspired by the work of Jonathan Fertig, and who was then in Boston, now in Denver, some other people. We put 25 traffic cones and we blocked off a bike lane so drivers couldn't park there. We put flowers in the cones, sunflowers, so that it would look intentional and people wouldn't think, oh, this is some random construction project. Also to make it fun, as I mentioned in the talk I did, you know, cycling, we talk a lot about safety and avoiding death and injury, but cycling should be fun. It's efficient, it's green, but you should feel good when you do it. Like it shouldn't feel like a chore or dangerous. So we put these flowers in to give it that element of whimsy. And we said, boom, we did it. It costs like $500 worth of materials, 25 minutes worth of our time, five people. There's no reason the city can't do this with much more resources, more money, more people. And the only thing stopping it is political will and bureaucracy. So get it done. For Monocle in Turin, I'm Carlotta Rabello. Thanks, Carlotta. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, get new episodes directly to you every week. The Urbanist is produced and edited by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And to play you out this week, here's Parov Stella with A Night in Torino. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Roll, roll.